Welcome to Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's, a patient-centered nonprofit organization. Your host, Meryl Comer, is a co-founder, 24-year caregiver, an Emmy Award-winning journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Slow Dancing with a Stranger. This is Brainstorm, and I'm Meryl Comer. Your brain controls and coordinates everything your body does, from the movement of your fingers to your heart rate. It also plays a crucial role in how you control and process your emotions. In today's edition, we continue our conversation about the influence of sex and gender on our brain and emotional memory. Our guest is Dr. Larry Cahill, professor of neurobiology and behavior at the University of California, Irvine. He is writing the first textbook, Examining Sex and Gender in the Brain. Larry, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. How do you define emotional memory and what part of the brain controls emotion? So by emotional memory, I mean memory for those events that tend to be emotionally arousing. And by emotionally arousing, I mean activating your body's stress hormone system, your body's fight or flight system. And there's a hypothesis, an idea that's anchored in animal research that holds that your body's stress hormones interact with your brain, in particular, a little structure called the amygdala. And the amygdala then acts like sort of an amplifier, cranking up memories in other parts of the brain. So the idea is you've got this sort of built-in memory boost system. Well, when I started to ask the question 20 years ago, is this idea, which is generated from a lot of animal research, true in humans or not, I found that yes, it is. It holds up very well in humans, but not the same way in men and women we found a difference in which amygdala was important for emotional memory in men and women. By which amygdala, I mean the one in the left hemisphere or the one in the right hemisphere. And it turns out that the amygdala in the left hemisphere was proving to be more important for emotional memory, memory for emotional events in women, the amygdala in the right hemisphere more for men. That's the finding that started it all for me 20 years ago. Dr. Cahill, are there different and distinct differences between the brains of women and men? There are thousands, hundreds or thousands of distinct differences in the brains of men and women, most down to the very fine level, the level of what we call the molecular level, the level of the cells and the systems, not so much on the global level, the level of the gross brain structure. Although even on the level of gross brain structure, modern machine learning algorithms are able to distinguish women's and men's brains routinely, you know, 90, 95% of the time. When we talk about sex differences in the brain, the ones that we as neuroscientists think matter we're talking about things more down on the cellular level. And as I've tried to capture in my lectures for the last 20 years, they really are ubiquitous. They're at the level of synapses. They're at the level of the structure of the neurons. They're at the level of how the neurons respond to sex hormones and stress hormones. The brain, basically, to put it simply for everyone, the brain is a very deeply sex-influenced organ. And 20 years ago, we really didn't think that. Almost no one thought it, myself included. So it's about as big a shift as you can have in a 20-year period from believing, no, there just aren't sex influences on the brain, to no, the brain is soaked in sex influences at all level of its function. Understanding what they all mean, that's the hard part. And studying them without over-interpreting them, that's the challenge for everybody. Dr. Cahill, when you look at the range of emotions from fear, anger, happiness, love, do they manifest differently in the body? And what are the differences between men and women? Can we find a signature of different emotions in the body? It's a question that goes back about 100 years. And the answer is, to some degree, you can. 
there's not sort of clear-cut distinction. And also on that question, I would say there really, to my knowledge, hasn't been a whole lot of work done on whether or not particular emotions differ too much in the brains of males and females. Remember, when you talk about the sex difference issue, we're still at a phase where a whole lot of people still aren't studying females. So you shouldn't expect that a lot of these questions have been well examined for years and years because a lot of people haven't even started to study the question. So what part of the brain controls anger and aggression? There's no simple answer to what controls anger and aggression, but probably this little structure called the amygdala is as involved as any structure. Dr. Cahill, you're talking about emotional response. Is the sensation of happiness created by harmony in the brain's response to a situation? Is happiness created by more of a harmony amongst different systems in the brain? That's a very good idea, and it may well be the case. Well, the reason I ask that question is because music is diffused in the brain, and the experience and the ability of those who suffer from Alzheimer's, who haven't spoken in years, can all of a sudden sing a song. So it isn't trapped in one part of the brain. That's very interesting. There is something we do know pretty well from uh, lots of studies of brain and memory, independently of sex differences, that relates to what you just said. And that is that the parts of the brain that first start to decay in Alzheimer's disease, in particular parts called the medial temporal lobe, a couple inches in from your ears on either side, these parts are generally distinct from the parts of the brain that are heavily involved in habits or making habits. So when you talk about things like being able to sing an old song that you've learned a long time ago, there's a lot of reasons to think that the parts of the brain that subserve that are different from the parts of the brain that start to decay early in Alzheimer's disease. And so that's one reason why what you just said happens, that people who are starting to be in the early phases of dementia a lot of habits are still in their mind fine. It turns out that the habits are being held heavily in parts of the brain that haven't been as affected as much by the Alzheimer's disease. Let's stay in this space. In the early stages of dementia, learned social controls about emotion and behavior also appear to unravel. Yes. Those are probably somewhat different from the habit parts of the brain. The habit parts of the brain stay pretty well intact much longer. But now when we get to the parts of the brain that control emotion and anger, now we're back to our friend the amygdala and in particular its relationships with the front of the brain called the prefrontal lobe. And there's lots of studies that have looked at how the relationship between the prefrontal lobe and the amygdala starts to break down in Alzheimer's disease. And that's probably where you start to get your emotional dysregulation. I am aware of no studies to date, they may exist, but I'm not aware of them, that have started to look for sex differences in how that breakdown between the prefrontal and the amygdala takes place in Alzheimer's. I'm not aware of any studies that have looked into that. Dr. Cahill, from your research, do memories change over time? Are they layered every time you reflect on them? Is there an add-on to what happened and how accurate are they? The brain, the thing you're using right now to listen to me, is the single most complicated system in the known universe. There's a lot we don't know about it. Do memories stay the same? Well, sometimes they do, especially extremely emotionally charged memories. Certain parts of them seem to stay locked in, burned into people's memories forever. And that may have to do again with our friend the amygdala. At the same time, other kinds of memories, maybe memories that aren't as emotionally arousing, are certainly prone to distortion. Someone once said that of all liars, the smoothest and most convincing is memory. 
memory can absolutely, over time with the layering that you talked about, you can grow convinced of things that never actually happened. So the human memory system is capable of both, capable of under some conditions having a rock solid memory that won't fade maybe when you want it to fade. And then on the flip side, you have a memory system that's capable in other circumstances of believing things that never happened and all of the above. By and large, if our memories weren't generally accurately related to what we experienced, we'd be selected out. Yes, our memories can and regularly do create false memories. At the same time, if our memories weren't by and large accurate representations of what we experienced, we wouldn't be here. The diagnostic tools for diagnosing stages of Alzheimer's, are women able to elude it because of the way their brains work? I believe some of the work of Pauline Mackey says exactly that, that there is some reserve cognitive capacity that women have that allows them, in some situations at least, to elude the diagnosis for a while. Now, whether or not that's a good thing poses a different question. These are the kinds of things that we're discovering more and more. On the flip side, there are other studies that suggest that in other situations, women are worse off. That is, there are studies that suggest that for each unit of pathology that you see in the brain of an Alzheimer's patient, there's a greater drop-off in behavior in women than in men. These questions often boil down so much to the particular conditions of a particular study, but they all keep pointing to the same conclusion, which is if you want to fully understand something like Alzheimer's disease, you're not going to do it by focusing just on men or just on women. You have to understand both and understand where they're similar and different. Reportedly, memory starts to decline from your 30s onward. Are most of what we would call the sins of memory loss just not paying attention? You generally need large studies to see this, but the first evidence of some kind of drop-off in memory ability is somewhere around age 30. Not that you would necessarily notice in your day-to-day -day life. Again, you need sort of large sample sizes to see these effects. No, I wouldn't say that it's having just to do with the ability to pay attention. It's certainly a lot more going on than that. For both men and women, presumably the more fractured you are, the more things you have to pay attention to in your life, the more you're likely to let things slip away from your memory. To what degree do our technologies interfere with the consolidation of events as memories? Things like little sounds going off, the many things that are constantly impinging, literally pinging on your consciousness. It does concern me. One of the themes in brain science, and especially that's relevant to Alzheimer's, there's a use it or lose it element to brain function, not unlike a muscle, right? Whole careers have been built on helping Alzheimer's patients by helping them to use and not lose what they've got. Well, the more the little device in your hand is doing the work for you, the less your brain is. I like to tell the story of your listeners may know that there was a pretty famous study from 15 or 20 years ago where they studied taxi drivers in London. And to cut to the chase, they were all men who had to have an incredible map in their head in order to be able to be a successful taxi driver in London. And a certain part of your brain that seems to be important for making these maps is called the hippocampus. And amazingly enough, the London taxi drivers seemed to have larger hippocampi, especially in their right hemisphere, than people who didn't have these massive maps in their head. That's kind of a striking finding that really does suggest that the use it or lose it function as it comes to the hippocampus, your hippocampus might grow if you have used your hippocampus sufficiently to make maps. Well, I like to say that as I watch people wandering around just staring at screens and not even knowing where they're going, they have no idea. Just this little device is saying, turn left, turn right. I can almost see their hippocampi shrinking. 
and I'm only being partially facetious when I say that. I do wonder what this technology is literally doing in real time to people's brains. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. We'd like to invite you back when you're finished your book. I'd be delighted to come back. Our thanks today to our guest, Dr. Larry Cahill, who is writing the first textbook, Examining Sex and Gender Differences in the Brain, with the goal to bring the latest science on the topic to the next generation of researchers and medical professionals. As Dr. Cahill put it, there's no turning back now. That's it for this edition. I'm Errol Comer. Thank you for brainstorming with us. Us Against Alzheimer's is partnering with the American Academy of Lifestyle Medicine to create Brain Health Academy, a series of free evidence-based courses to equip healthcare and wellness providers with the knowledge and resources to help people reduce the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. To learn more, go to usagainstalzheimers.org and click on Brain Health Academy. Support for Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's comes from Karen and Chris Siegel and from our corporate sponsors, Biogen, Esai, and Eli Lilly. Subscribe to Brainstorm on your favorite podcast platform and join us for new episodes on the first and third Tuesday of every month.